Hi everyone and welcome to episode 20 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And we just wanted to very quickly say that this is your warning to enter our giveaway competition over on Facebook for your chance to win one of our podcast hoodies. The winner will be drawn at random at 6pm on Thursday the 6th, so uh, that will be tomorrow after this is released. So yep, make sure you head over to Facebook to enter for your chance to win one of our hoodies. And this, just a little reminder again, um, is open to anyone in the world. So wherever you are, you're eligible to enter and you will become the third person on planet Earth to own a very cool infraction <laughs> hoodie. Exactly. And who doesn't want to be in a chance to win that? <laughs> All right, let's crack on with today's episode. So today's episode, I will warn everyone, is really quite graphic and honestly very brutal. Today we'll be talking about the murders of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. This is a really important case. It's one that the media really neglected to report on. And there were so many failings by the courts and the justice system. And Shannon and Chris's families were honestly put through so much hell because of that. So I really do hope you'll stay and listen. But this will be a graphic case. So listener discretion is advised. What I'll do is I'll give a warning for those of you who don't want to hear the really graphic bit. And I'll tell you to skip a minute. So if you can stay and listen and just skip the very detailed bit, then we would really, really appreciate that. And we would love that so much. So Shannon Christian was a 21-year-old student at the University of Tennessee and her boyfriend, Christopher Newsom, was a 23-year-old carpenter from the Knoxville area of Tennessee. The couple started dating in November 2006 and so their relationship was really new and they were really happy together. On January 6th, 2007, Shannon and Chris had plans to go to a friend's birthday party but they ended up bailing on that party and went to Shannon's friend's house to watch a film instead. Just after midnight, so this is technically Sunday the 7th, 2007 now, Shannon called her dad to tell him that although she'd planned to sleep at her friend's house, she didn't want to anymore and so her and Chris would be on their way home shortly. Unfortunately, Shannon and Chris never made it home. Chris's parents said that they actually hadn't realised that their son was missing until they received a call from Dana, Shannon's mother, telling them that the couple hadn't come home that night and that they were going to file a missing persons report. They said it wasn't really unusual at all for Chris to go days without coming home or calling them, so that's why they'd initially not realised that he was missing. Horrifyingly for the Newsoms, later, on Sunday the 7th, 2007, Christopher Newsom's body was found by a railway track near Chipman Street in Knoxville. He had been raped, tortured, and then was led barefoot to the railway tracks where he was then shot in the back and then once in the head at close range. He was identified by one of the responding officers who knew Chris as he had been friends with that officer's son. He phoned Chris's parents and told them that they'd recovered Chris's body. When his dad asked how he knew it was Chris, the officer responded, I recognised his eyes. Unfortunately, Shannon was nowhere to be seen. The police scoured the area and they found Shannon's stolen car. Inside the car were fingerprints, and when these were put through the police database, it alerted them that the fingerprints belonged to a Lamarcus Davidson. Lamarcus Davidson lived in a rented property on Chipman Street, the street that was parallel to the railway track where Chris's body had been found. They went to his house, and inside they found the body of Shannon Christian. This is what the investigators say happened to Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom on the 7th of January 2007. Just a few minutes after Shannon had called her father to let him know they were coming home, Shannon and Chris left their friend's apartment and walked through the car park to Shannon's car. Shannon got into the driver's seat and Chris stood at her open door. He leaned into the car to kiss her and it was then that the couple were attacked at gunpoint. 
They were carjacked and abducted and driven to Lamarcus Davidson's house on Chipman Street. As I indicated earlier, both Shannon and Chris were raped and tortured before they were murdered. It appeared that Chris was killed only a few hours after he'd been abducted, whereas Shannon was kept alive for at least another 24 hours. This next bit is incredibly graphic, so if you don't want to hear it, please either skip forward one minute or turn it down for the next minute. Shannon had been repeatedly raped orally and vaginally, at times with a blunt object and at other times by the perpetrators, and bleach had been poured down her throat in an attempt to destroy any DNA evidence. Her neck was broken and she was then wrapped in five plastic bin bags and then forced into a small bin where she slowly suffocated to death. There are lots of sources out there that state that Shannon's breasts had been cut off and that Chris's penis had also been cut off. I cannot find any sort of verification for this and the police have always declined to comment on this aspect of the case so I hope that means that this is untrue. Needless to say, her torture and murder was slow and would have been unimaginably terrifying. As I mentioned earlier, Chris had also been raped and tortured before he was murdered too. He was found gagged with a sock in his mouth. His ankles were tied together with his belt and his hands were also bound behind his back. There was a bandana wrapped around his face and he was shot once in the back and once in the neck, paralysing him. And then the final and fatal shot was delivered execution style with the gun pressed up against his head. His body was then drenched in gasoline and he was set on fire. You don't need me to tell you that this was an incredibly brutal and violent murder, and it was even more unusual since there was no link between Davidson, the man who rented the home where Shannon's body had been found, and the couple. Just trying to process that. So not linked to the suspected murderer or the couple, this was just a completely random home. Um, so Lamarcus Davidson owns the home where Shannon's body was found, um, but he's not at all linked to Shannon or Christopher, so they said that obviously because of this was such a violent attack that was quite surprising to the police because normally attacks that are this violent are usually quite personal um, and the attacker usually knows the victims but in this case there was no connection between um, Lamarcus Davidson who at this point they assume is the attacker um, and, and Chris and Shannon. Right, okay. So the police worked quickly and ultimately ended up arresting two suspects on January 11th just three days after the murders. The two suspects were Latalvis Cobbins, he was reportedly Lamarcus Davidson's brother, and their friend George Thomas. Later on the same day, the police located and arrested Lamarcus Davidson too. If you can remember, I mentioned that Chris was made to walk barefoot to the railway tracks, where Chris's shoes were actually found in Lamarcus Davidson's possession when the police arrested him. Ultimately, five suspects were arrested and charged with offences relating to the abduction, torture and murder of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom. Five? Mm-hmm. So three of those suspects were the men I just mentioned. So they are Latalvis Cobbins, George Thomas and Lamarcus Davidson. The fourth suspect was a man named Eric Boyd, the man who had been helping Lamarcus Davidson hide from the police. And the fifth suspect charged was a female named Vanessa Coleman. She was the girlfriend of Latalvis Cobbins. So whilst the suspects were remanded in custody awaiting their trials, this case was sparking a lot of racial protests. White supremacists started rallying and said that the media wasn't reporting this crime in the way that it should be reported. They said that this was a racially motivated hate crime. Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom were white, but all five of the accused suspects were black. The police were adamant this crime wasn't racially motivated. They said it was just a random attack of chance because Shannon and Chris had been in that car park at the same time where the perpetrators were lurking. This question on whether this was a racially motivated attack might be the reason for the lack of media attention surrounding this case. 
There was really no national coverage on it across America, only a handful of reports shortly after the murders, but nothing really after that. One interview I saw with someone who worked at one of the Knoxville newspapers said that the reason for the lack of news coverage was that, although yes, this was an incredibly violent crime for an area like Knoxville, it wasn't that rare an occurrence in other states in America. I mean, I don't live in the US and I really know very little about the daily crime stats in all the states, but I don't believe for one second that that's true because I can't believe a double murder as violent and as brutal as this, committed by four men and one woman at complete random, is something that happens regularly enough to warrant this not making the news. No, I agree with you, but I don't know the ins and outs enough of if you've got a case where it's quite clear cut who the subject is, so there's no particular ongoing threat to the public however there will be an ongoing trial whether actually maybe at Mm. that point a lot of media attention could actually be more damaging than good Mm. i mean i appreciate it's newsworthy um but like i say if they're sure that they've got the person who's did it and it's not an ongoing hunt or inquiry then maybe they felt that actually a bit of a media block would be beneficial for uh, a trial and maybe you know have to think about sort of the respect and dignity of the victims here who mm-hmm. have you know their families would you want this all plastered over the press i guess probably not well i i thought that as well but i did see um an interview with um christopher newsom's parents and both of them said that they were actually really upset that it didn't get more media coverage because they felt like it kind of just been brushed under the carpet but i do understand mm. what you're saying it is obviously quite a violent and brutal crime i guess yeah would you want it to be displayed in the newspapers i'm, I'm not really sure but i think that's actually interesting maybe it was you know in relation to the fact that uh, these um suspects you know hadn't gone on trial yet and things like that so yeah it could have been related to that so at this point i'm wondering um what evidence or what involvement did they think that the other four suspects had? Well, other three, because I understand one of them's been concealing a mm-hmm. man who's wanted by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, Marcus, Lamarcus Davidson, um, well, he's inextric- inextricably linked to the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what about the other three? Um, it basically all comes down to um, the DNA evidence that was found on Shannon and it comes down to DNA evidence found in the house and then them kind of all ratting on each other really in their police interviews. But I mean, we go into what happens at the trial and that kind of explains it a little bit better. Okay. So from the sounds of things though, um, you think that maybe the racial relations and the white supremacists had a bit more of an influence on the media block? Uh, yeah, well, kind of. And, and that's kind of the general um, impression that I get from all the reports and things that I've read. It kind of just seemed to get to the point where actually people were kind of speaking about this case for the wrong reasons. They were speaking about this case in reference to the alleged racial hatred rather than the fact that two young people had been, you know, brutally and senselessly murdered in such a horrendous and unimaginable way. So, yeah, the white supremacists and... Um, kind of like neo-nazis really they spread so many rumors and lies about what happened to shannon and and chris to basically create like a propaganda so earlier i mentioned the gruesome mutilation of both shannon and chris and um i said that i couldn't find any verified source that said whether or not this was you know part of the case was true this could have been one of the many lies spread in relation to this case by white supremacists because they were falsely detailing awful parts of the case to try and generate racial hatred towards the black community in Knoxville. 
And in May 2007, a group of neo-Nazis gathered in Knoxville for what they called like a rally against genocide. Um, And they organised this protest in the names of Shannon and Chris. And they held up signs that said like diversity equals white death. And they spoke really in gruesome detail about Shannon and Chris's murders whilst fabricating a lot of the facts in basically an attempt to generate propaganda. Um, which is sickening and it's awful for their families. And, you know, the authorities have always said that this case was not race-related. And they've said, you know, there's a lot of false information out there regarding the details of the case. And this false information has been spread by people who have one agenda, and that's to spread hatred. Um, But they've always stood by the fact that the motivation for this crime was thought to be really a random carjacking that then escalated into a cold-blooded murder. Yeah, and I just think it's really disgusting when people are using... Um, a death or a horrible happening like here where the victims aren't around to separate themselves from Mm -hmm. what you rightly said is a completely separate agenda i mean white supremacists using um a murder that frankly they have no idea really of the context behind or anything for their Mm -hmm. own cause i just think it's disgusting it's capitalizing on a real tragedy Yeah, completely. And for that to be what's being spoke about. And you know, what actually happened to Shannon and Chris was so awful. It's beyond imagination. But for them to then come in and make up, you know, even more horrifying facts about the case, just to try and spread hatred and turn this into a racial issue, it is disgusting. It is just awful. Mm. So the five defendants in this case were all tried separately. And the Knox County District Attorney said that he planned to seek the death penalty for four out of the five suspects. A large amount of the information you're going to hear next has come from reporting from Jamie Satterfield for Knoxville News Sentinel, who extensively reported on this case. So, of course, as always, all the links for that are below if you want to check them out. But in April 2008, a year and four months after the murders, the trial of the first suspect, Eric Boyd, went ahead and he was found guilty of being an accessory after the fact in connection with the case. And he was sentenced by a federal court to 18 years imprisonment. Eric Boyd had not been linked to the carjacking, the torture or the murders of Shannon and Christopher and he was instead found to have just been responsible for hiding LaMarcus Davidson when he knew the police were after him. This was actually really disheartening to the families as they actually did believe that he had been an accomplice to the crimes against their children. Did they have any evidence to support that? Um, Not at that point they didn't, but as we'll go on to see... um, there more evidence comes out from other people's testimonies. So like, for example, we're going to talk next about Latalvis Cobbins and um, his testimony really implicates Eric Boyd as being there on the night opposed to just being there after the fact. Right, okay. The next trial was not until August 2009. And as I just mentioned, this was the trial of Latalvis Cobbins. The court heard how his DNA and sperm was found on Shannon. LaMarcus Davidson's girlfriend testified at Cobbins' trial and put Latalvis Cobbins, LaMarcus Davidson, George Thomas and Vanessa Coleman at the house where Shannon had been murdered on that night. She said that on the afternoon of Sunday the 7th, 2007, she'd gone over to LaMarcus Davidson's house and she'd gone there because he said he had some new clothes to give her that he'd bought her. At this point, Christopher Newsom's body had been discovered but Shannon was still missing. At the house, she said that Latalvis Cobbins had been sat in a chair by the kitchen door and that he kept his head down and didn't look at her as she walked through to the bathroom. She said she tried to get into the bathroom, but it was locked and someone was in there. She asked LaMarcus if it was Vanessa in there. Um, She thought basically that it was Vanessa in the bathroom, but due to hearsay regulations um, at the trial, she couldn't actually say whether or not LaMarcus had said it was Vanessa. But I think the general idea is that 
Vanessa was in the bathroom at that point. Um, so that kind of puts her at the scene of the crime. Um, Lamarcus Davidson then gave her, so this is his girlfriend, she's called Daphne. Lamarcus gave Daphne a Sears bag with clothes in it that he had supposedly bought for her and she left. When she left, she looked in the bag and realised that the clothes and other objects in the bag were not new and had not been recently bought. And it was later discovered that these clothes belonged to Shannon Christian. So although this trial obviously is for Latalvis Cobbins, this is very damning evidence against Lamarcus Davison too. Really though, what Daphne's testimony does in terms of Latalvis Cobbins and his trial is put him there at the scene when Shannon's body was still inside that bin in one of the rooms. Cobbins then did something quite unprecedented and he took the stand in his own trial. His lawyer, strangely, didn't actually ask him any questions and instead he just said, tell the jury what you want to tell them. And for 40 minutes, Latalvis Cobbins sat and told the jury and the court what had happened that night. Wow. Mm, so I've seen the entire thing. I don't really know how to feel about it. Um, what he basically uses as his defense is that he says either Lamarcus or Eric Boyd gave him what he calls a wet blunt. And so I googled what this means and it basically is marijuana soaked in PCP and that can cause hallucinations and paranoia and other visual disturbances. So on the stand, Latalvis says that he and the other guys walked into the house with, quote, the guy and the girl. And I'm pretty sure we can obviously take that to mean Shannon and Chris. He doesn't mention Chris that much, but he does mention Shannon. He says that she was blindfolded and someone had put the hood of a hoodie over her head. I can't really work out what happened next according to his story, but at some point he went to go wake up Vanessa, who was asleep in one of the other rooms, and told her that they were going to leave. For whatever reason, they didn't leave, and he went back downstairs. He saw Shannon tied up in the corner of the lounge. He said he gave her some water at the request of one of the other guys, um, and apparently at this point her blindfold was off. Latalvis then says that he stood in the kitchen and started feeling very sick and he started to feel very dizzy and high from that wet blunt that he'd been smoking earlier before the carjacking. This part of the story is very, very confusing. He keeps saying, like, I was tripping, I was tripping. Um, and I can't tell if that if he's basically trying to say that he was hallucinating and he was kind of, like, out of his head a little bit or if he's using it as a turn of phrase. Do you know what I mean? Um, no, I don't know what I'm tripping means apart from tripping. Well, I think people, he says it a lot in the entire testimony. He's like, man was tripping, I was tripping, he was tripping. But then he's really saying it at this point when he's talking about being stood in the kitchen and like hallucin, like, he doesn't say he's hallucinating. He says he stood in the kitchen, he's really dizzy. And then he keeps saying like, I was tripping, I was tripping. So uh, to me, I don't know, but it doesn't, I kind of, if I saw that tra on a transcript, right, I would think that he means that he's hallucinating. But I imagine that he's probably just using it more as a turn of phrase, but you know, I can't really tell. Either way, he says that at that point, he said to Lamarcus Davison that Davidson was really messed up for tricking him to go out there and carjack these people and take them. There's loads of other utter nonsense that comes out of his mouth for like the next 10 minutes. Um, but then he says that he went into a room and he saw Shannon lying down and that she was tied up on an air mattress. He said that her hands were tied above her head and they were tied to a duffel bag that was filled with weights. He said that he undid her hands from the duffel bag so she could sit up and he gave her some more water. Cobbin said that at this point, Shannon asked where her boyfriend was and asked them why they were doing this. And apparently she also asked if she could have a cigarette. He said he gave her a cigarette and then Shannon asked, why are you doing this to me? Cobbins said that he replied saying, quote, it's not me. 
I have nothing to do with this. We are being held here against our will just like you are. The only difference is that you are tied up and we're not. Latalvis Cobbins then said that Shannon said, Please convince him to let me go. I'll do anything for you if you just let me go. Cobbins said that Shannon then offered him oral sex. Cobbins then said, quote, I let her give me oral sex. I think regardless of whether this is true or not and whether it is something Shannon offered, which I personally just don't think that it is true, but I mean regardless of if, if she did offer it because she was obviously in this intensely terrifying situation... To me, I think this is genuinely sexual assault and I think it's forced. I don't think there's any way that she could really have consented properly to that. And I'm actually just furious that he sat there and he said that in front of her family. And the entire time he's making out like he's a victim in all this and that he was kind of like friends with Shannon. Like the way he's saying it, he's like, he was being very friendly to her. He gave her a cigarette, he gave her water. And then he's like, oh, and then I let her give me oral sex. It's sickening to watch, honestly. Yeah, I completely agree. He's assaulted her just as much as anyone at this point, and he's an accessory, regardless mm -hmm. of what kind of coercion he may have felt he was under. At this point, he's made no clear attempt to put okay. right a situation mm -hmm. that's clearly getting out of control, mm -hmm. and which he probably already knows what's going to happen to Shannon ultimately. So, mm -hmm. no, I completely agree. Regardless of his testimony, to be honest, he's just as guilty as anyone in my mind. Yeah, well, completely. I think, to be honest, his reasons for confessing this to the court, I th I believe it was to justify why his semen was found on Shannon. Because um, this bit is like a little bit graphic, but he basically said that she was Shannon was giving him supposedly oral sex. And then he said, as he ejaculated, he heard Vanessa, who's his girlfriend, coming up, like walking up towards the room. And he said he got spooked and then he like pulled out and that's, as he ejaculated so that's why his semen ended up all over Shannon's top and trousers um to me that sounds like total total bs but I mean I imagine that is why he is saying this do you know what I mean it's kind of his justification he's kind of saying it was consensual or whatever yeah absolutely but there is no consent in a situation no, like this absolutely like she's a girl terrified trying to do anything she can to save her life and escape the situation so mm -hmm. regardless of whether he thinks it makes for a good story that doesn't implicate him actually he's an idiot yeah well exactly it just shows how disgusting he is to be honest um well he said after this that he put her back how he found her so can only assume this means that he tied her up again after this he said that for the next several hours he and vanessa just sat at the table in the kitchen whilst george thomas and lamarcus davidson were in the bedroom with shannon after this, Eric Boyd came back and then went into the room where Shannon was being held. So earlier on in the testimony, um, Latalvis Cobbins said that um, he said, I'm pretty sure he says E left with the guy. So I think E must be Eric Boyd. And then um, I think the guy he's referring to is unfortunately Chris Newsom. So he says then at this point, Eric's come back and um, he no longer had the guy with him. Those are his words. Um he said that when Eric went into the room where Shannon was being held, after that, um, all five suspects left the house and got into the car that they'd stolen from Shannon. Apparently, they went to a shop to get some cigarettes and some cigars, and then they went to find another guy who they called Vince, um, but Vince wasn't home, so they all went back to LaMarcus Davidson's house. So during that time, Shannon was um, left alone, if you believe Latavis Cobbins' story. At that point, Shannon was left alone in the house, um, but... 
at a different part of the testimony, he says that Lamarcus Davison had like deadbolts and locks on all of his doors and that all of his windows were nailed shut. So um, I imagine if Shannon was tied up, she wouldn't have been able to try to run away anyway. But either way, I think there was actually no escaping for her, unfortunately. So supporting the earlier witness statement that we heard from Lamarcus Davidson's girlfriend, Daphne, Cobbins said that Daphne did come over um, after they'd all got back from the shop and that Lamarcus had given Daphne a bag of Shannon's clothes. Cobbins said that he also gave some things to Vanessa too. He said that sometime on the Sunday, Lamarcus brought Shannon out of the bedroom. He made Vanessa, George and Latalvis all go into the utility room where Lamarcus then tried to strangle or choke Shannon. Lamarcus Davidson then ordered Vanessa to feel Shannon's pulse. After this, he tied up Shannon and put her in some garbage bags and then put her in the trash can. In his statement, he then says that he, Latalvis Cobbins, George Thomas and Vanessa Coldman all walked to Vince's house, which took a few hours. I still don't know who Vince is, by the way. Um, but he then said that George, him and Vanessa stayed the night at this guy's house and then the next day they got a ride to Kentucky. The rest of his testimony is basically Cobbins explaining how he tried to get people to lie to him, to say that they were with him at the time of the murders, etc. Um, and he explains how he was going to turn himself in the day after he saw his picture on the news, but that he got arrested beforehand. He also admits that he lied in his initial police interview. He said everything he said about everyone else was true, but that he'd lied to the police about his part in the crime, specifically his part in having sexual contact with Shannon. What I really took from this incredibly long video of Latalvis Cobbins was this. I think his story beforehand about the events that took place uh, leading up to the carjacking, which I didn't go into detail about because, quite frankly, it doesn't really matter. But I think all of that is very true. And then after that point in the story when they actually kidnap Shannon and Chris, I think then his story is very rehearsed. I know it sounds a bit silly, but his story is completely in order. He never fumbles on the timeline or says you know, like, oh, wait, no, this happened first, or we did this, but then actually, no, wait, this happened. It's really, really rehearsed. It's really in order. Um, and the entire testimony is just him trying to paint himself as a victim um, in the entire thing and not as an accomplice, as we kind of just briefly touched on his story of how his semen was found on Shannon without him having been an accomplice is, in my opinion, completely fabricated and just plain disgusting. I cannot believe that her poor parents were sat in that courtroom and had to hear him say that. Just in general, though, his story is incredibly confusing um, and his use of kind of like slang, which I also kind of briefly touched on, um, and just his general speech pattern is really confusing. And I think if I was on the jury, I would have been totally confused by what he was saying. I had to wind back the video so many times just to re-listen to bits of it. Um, and I'm actually, to be honest, quite confused now. Um, so actually, I think in general, him testifying probably only harmed his case rather than helped it. Mm, definitely sounds like it. Mm. I think the entire point, though, was just to paint him as a victim um, and not as an accomplice. Well, and also I think to, yeah, to paint him as a bit of a victim. But really what he's doing is pointing the finger at the others. He's just mm -hmm. exaggerating the role they played. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think he's definitely exaggerating their role, whilst also simultaneously trying to protect Vanessa. I think that's the only kind of... Um, yeah, not noble thing, that's not the right word, but you know what I mean? That's the only kind of like thing that he does seem to do is, is actually try and protect Vanessa in this. I think that's why he mentions things like, oh, like Vanessa had some of uh, Shannon's clothes because Lamarcus gave them to her, that kind of thing. I think it's so, just in case her DNA's been found anywhere or ever, he does weirdly seem like he's protecting her. But yeah, like you said, exaggerating everyone else's involvement as well, I think. At this point though, I really can't understand why on earth Vanessa was there. Why she didn't say anything? What... Do you know what I mean? I mean, she was 
seemingly getting nothing from this as a crime, yet just from the sounds of things was sat there whilst it was all going on. It, I just find it really bizarre. Okay, right. So basically, I think the way that it happened was Latalvis and Vanessa and their friend George Thomas, I think they all come from Kentucky or they were living there at the time and they'd all come down to see um, LaMarcus Davidson. So... Latalvis Cobbins and Lamarcus Davidson are brothers, but I don't know how because obviously they've got different names and stuff like that. And I can't find kind of what their um, familial link is, but they always refer to each other as brothers. And all the reports I've seen, they are called brothers. So I think it was just that um, Latalvis came down from Kentucky, bought down his girlfriend and bought down his friend, George Thomas. And um, then they all got caught up in what was uh, supposedly Lamarcus Davidson's big carjacking plot that just turned into this absolutely disgusting, abhorrent crime. But all the men here, at a very basic level, are getting some sort of sexual gratification from this. Mm -hmm. Whereas to me, Vanessa's just sat watching this all play out. I'm not suggesting that she might have felt brave enough to do anything about it. Um, But it just seems bizarre to me that she's complicit in this whole act, which seemingly, I don't know, she doesn't seem invested in it. Like the others are do you know what I mean it seems a very yeah. strange dynamic mm, I, I do agree with that completely and I think maybe it might become slightly a tiny bit clearer when we go and speak about Vanessa's trial but um I would say that she it's unclear from the reports but I think she did I think she did um beat up Shannon um a little bit um but yeah I do understand what you're saying she doesn't seem to be getting some kind of any kind of sexual gratification or whatever from it, whatever these other guys seem to be getting from it. But I'm wondering if she's maybe just get carried away with like what all these other guys are doing. Do you know what I mean? Like she's just trying to be part of the group and maybe she's got some kind of confidence from the fact that they're all doing these horrible things and so she's just getting kind of swept along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, um, I think it was in our psychology A-level, do you remember that study where people feel less responsibility if there's more, more mm-hmm. of you? It sounds like it could be something similar to that. Yeah, or just, yeah, like you say, encouraging one another, you know, acting in numbers sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, at his trial, Latalvis Cobbins was found guilty by the jury of the first-degree murder of Shannon Christian and for facilitating the first-degree murder of Christopher Newsom. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole. In October 2009, Lamarcus Davidson stood trial. At his trial, the court heard that his sperm was found on Shannon's body. Lamarcus Davidson did not confess to raping Shannon. The defence played what I'm going to call kind of like the consensual intercourse um, card, if you will, because I am inferring that. But what the defence said was that the DNA evidence only proved that Lamarcus Davidson had had, quote, sexual intercourse with Shannon. And they said that the DNA evidence did not prove that the intercourse hurt her. In my opinion, that sounds to me like they're trying to say in a roundabout way that the sex was consensual. But, I mean, they've very much phrased that like wanky lawyers. Yeah, absolutely. And that isn't the definition of consent anyway, whether it hurts or not. No, yeah, well, exactly. Um, So at LaMarcus Davidson's trial, the defence tried to paint Shannon and Chris as kind of like bad people or, you know, they, they tried to remove the angelic shine that the prosecution had painted 
So they actually got Shannon's best friend on the stand. And I actually feel really, really awful for this poor girl because they went at her relentlessly and they tried to get her to admit that Shannon had smoked marijuana and that Shannon had owned a marijuana pipe and that she'd either stolen or used one of their other friend's prescription bottles of hydrocodone, um, which is like a opioid. And they said they found this prescription bottle in Shannon's car. The friend on the stand said the entire time that it was likely that the prescription bottle had been left there by accident, that she hadn't known Shannon to use drugs. But I mean, they were relentless in trying to paint these two victims as kind of like the bad people in this situation. It was really awful. Yeah, I understand the need for the defence lawyers and I know that sometimes they do do fantastic things. But in cases like this, I just find victim shaming and character assassinations just such a horrible, horrible thing to do for a family to sit there and watch their child's name be torn through the mud and make it seem like they were complicit in their own murder just because Mm -hmm. of choices they made Mm -hmm. completely independently of this. You know, who cares if she smoked weed? That doesn't have any bearing on the way in which this girl died Mm -hmm. and the situation and the, it's, you know, it's not kind of excuse, it's not relevant and I just find it deplorable when the same in sexual assault cases when former behaviour or anything is brought in like Mm -hmm. it's some sort of evidence pertaining to the crime because it's just not. But this is what I don't understand by it and this is what I find just so just awful because they were basically trying to say that Shannon had a drug addiction, right? So that was their link to this random bottle of um, opioids that was found in her car. They were trying to say that she had a drug addiction and that she had been in contact with LaMarcus Davidson, who was also a drug dealer. And they were saying that she got in contact with him and that's how this all started. And what's so frustrating is that they were allowed to stand there and they could say that in front of the jury and they could tell the jury these absolute fabricated lies. But what they couldn't do and what the prosecution wasn't allowed to do was bring to the court and show the jury that LaMarcus Davidson had a long history of carjacking, you know, which is an absolute integral part of this entire case. He has a history of committing crimes of the nature that he's being charged with and they're not allowed to tell the jury that just in case it taints their view on him. Yet the uh, the defence are allowed to just make up basically complete lies. They have no idea if Shannon ever got in contact with LaMarcus Davidson. There's nothing to suggest that she ever got in contact with him. I just cannot believe that, you know, they were allowed to do that and yet the prosecution weren't allowed to bring forward this genuine factual evidence about LaMarcus Davidson's criminal history. Yeah, absolutely. It's leading, it's suggestive and it's fabricating and without any hard evidence shouldn't be allowed to be brought into court because even if a judge tells a jury to disregard a story such as Shannon knowing LaMarcus, actually once you've heard something it's incredibly difficult to disregard that information and in fact the opposite is true. You're more likely to pay attention to it even if a judge says, okay, you know, that's hearsay, there's no evidence, disregard Mm. that theory. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree with you, it's incredibly frustrating. It was so frustrating and it got even more frustrating because the defense's closing statement to the court, um, he basically stood there and listed what he called explanations and not excuses for why LaMarcus Davidson did what he did. He told stories of Davidson's past and upbringing and things like that. And he tried to use these woeful stories to mitigate the crimes. Thankfully, this didn't appear to wash with the jury at all. And the jury, who considered LaMarcus Davidson to have been the ringleader of the entire crime, found him guilty of first degree murder first-degree felony murder and guilty of the facilitation of aggravated rape. When the jury was asked what sentence they had given LaMarcus Davidson, they responded with death. Well, I'm just so pleased then that all the lines that the defence tried to spin in this case didn't wash with the jury, like you said, because Mm -hmm. being the family, that must have felt like a moment of justice. It's never going to bring back their daughter, um, but actually 
to have a very unanimous, solid verdict um, that yeah really painted and acknowledged that what this man had done and who he was and how awful he was must have given the family something in the midst of all this tragedy. Completely, I definitely agree with that. So the next trial was the fourth trial, and this was for George Thomas, and this was held in December 2009. This was actually a more tricky conviction to try and get uh, for the prosecution because there was no forensic evidence linking George Thomas to the rapes, torture, or murders. There was no DNA and there was no fingerprints. What the court did hear, however, was a phone call that had been recorded from a Kentucky prison where George Thomas had been put after he'd been arrested. He made a phone call to his girlfriend at the time. In this phone call, he said that he had been there at the house, but he knew nothing about what had happened because he was asleep. Um, and I'm making assumptions here because the recording is really unclear, but it very much sounds like Miss Lawson, who is the girlfriend on the phone. She, I think she says, the police said that the guys had her in the back bedroom, to which George responds and says, they didn't because I was in the bedroom and the kitchen. They must have had her in another room. George said something about someone coming out of the room and saying that the girl wants some loving or something like that. You can then hear um, his girlfriend on the phone, very hysterical, and she says, how did you let this shit happen? Why did nobody in the house call the police? The court then heard George Thomas's response, which was, could have, should have, would have, but didn't. It wasn't any of my damn business in the first place. Wow, that's an amazing ability to separate yourself from something going on. But also I'm questioning how he was asleep for 24 hours. Yeah, well, completely. And also, how can you say that you were asleep for the entire thing and then be in like... the kitchen and the bedroom. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, exactly that. That's what I was going to say. So yeah, his story doesn't wash at all. Um, and he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. The jury actually spared him the death penalty, which was an option for them to give him, uh, which actually the families were really disappointed by. They said that they didn't get the chance to plead for mercy for their children's lives. So they didn't understand why he was shown mercy with regards to his life. Mary Newsom, Christopher's mother, also said that the families had heard more information about what George Thomas had done to both Chris and Shannon and that she felt that if the jury had been told that information then they would have sentenced him to death but for whatever reason this was also not allowed to be brought to the trial so I don't know what that information is but uh, the families were absolutely certain that he had more of an integral role in this. Is it not possible um, in law for all the perpetrators to be tried in one trial because it seems to me here that a lot of the um, witness statements and all of that they're all so inextricably linked that actually one jury hearing all of it would have been of some value so I don't know do people ever get tried all as one instead of mm -hmm. having all these separate trials yeah it's actually probably I would say um, it's probably slightly more common actually for everyone to be tried together um, especially when it's obviously related to the the exact same crime mm. um so normally in the uk you would do that i'm not sure here if it's any difference because it's in america but i imagine it's not i imagine it kind of is very similar what i would say however is that they're all being charged for separate offenses so it's not like they're all right. being charged for the same murders they've all actually faced very different charges with regards to the murders torture and rapes of both shannon and chris so yeah. i wonder if it has something to do with that um and maybe um, possibly because there's five um, defendants, it could be that it might just be overload of information for the jury, especially if every single one of them got on the stand and they were all giving different accounts of what happened and they were all saying that different people were involved doing different things. It could actually hinder the case more because the jury could just end up getting incredibly confused by all the different stories and have really no idea about you know who's telling the truth and who's not. Yeah, and I suppose the prosecution are going to want to do whatever's most likely to secure a conviction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
Uh, so the fifth and final trial was held in May 2010, and this was the trial of Vanessa Coleman. She had been Latalvis Cobbins' girlfriend at the time of the murders. The defence put forward to the jury that Vanessa had always been told that she was just a material witness in this trial, and that when the police questioned her, uh, Vanessa hadn't known that she was a suspect. To that effect, the prosecution couldn't actually present any evidence to the jury that, that proved that Vanessa Coleman had played a direct role in either of the two murders. Instead, they actually put forward that Vanessa was criminally responsible for all the crimes committed because she was there and she didn't attempt to stop them or get help. The prosecution said that this was a complex crime that took a group of people to commit and that Vanessa was part of that group. They said that she had facilitated the death of Christopher Newsom by holding Shannon hostage whilst the others killed Christopher. The defence said that the prosecution was just trying to make Vanessa guilty by association. I mean, I don't really know how you feel about this. I think, judging by what you said earlier about Vanessa, maybe you feel a little bit different to me. Um, I mean, I don't know, I'm just kind of guessing that. Because I, I feel that the prosecution saying that she's just guilty by association is complete BS, to be honest. Because, in my view, she didn't help. You know, she didn't attempt to stop it or help Shannon. And if it is true that the men left her with Shannon whilst they went to go murder Chris down by the railway tracks, then she could have actually let Shannon go or have called the police or something. So I personally take that to be more than an association. I think that that's, you know, she's complicit and she assisted them, but I don't really know how you feel about that. No, I do actually agree with you. I mean, if you compare it in some respect to George, um, mm -hmm. who, again, there's no DNA evidence. There's not necessarily any firm evidence saying that he did anything other than be, you know, an accessory or do nothing. Um, then I you know, if you judge him on that basis, then yeah, I agree. She had some chance to try, you know, you, the only thing I was caveating it with earlier is you don't know the situation, but equally just because she's a woman, her situation necessarily any different. Um, I'm not saying that any of, you know, all of them might've felt very coerced into the situation they're in. Um, but I do think absolutely that the fact that she did seemingly absolutely nothing yeah. to try and save the life of another human being yeah, I'm guilty by association. Same thing as guilty, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, totally. So she wrote a letter that was read out to the court and it explained her involvement. Um, she said that she'd taken the pulse of Shannon's once and that she um, had got some of Shannon's clothes from LaMarcus Davidson. So that kind of carries, um, that kind of ties in what Latalvis Cobbins had said. Um, she also said that if her DNA was on... Um, the sheets that were used to tie up Shannon, it was because she'd slept on them a few times before they'd been used to tie her up, but that she never had any contact with Shannon other than those that I just read out. The jury found Vanessa Coleman guilty on the charges of facilitating the murder, kidnapping, rape and theft of Shannon Christian. They actually found her not guilty on the charges that related to the murder of Christopher Newsom. Several months later at her sentencing hearing, Judge Baumgartner, the judge who actually presided over all of um, the trials except for Eric Boyd's, he sentenced Vanessa Coleman to 53 years in prison. Unfortunately, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, this was not actually the end of the horrors that the Christian and Newsom families would face, because in December 2011, Judge Blackwood ordered the retrials of Latalvis Cobbins, George Thomas, Vanessa Coleman and LaMarcus Davidson. Why? Uh, so I mentioned uh, about 30 seconds ago that Judge Baumgartner was the presiding judge over all the suspect's trials, apart from Eric Boyd's. Well, in January 2011, an investigation into Judge Baumgartner was carried out by the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And in March 2011, he was arrested and charged with official misconduct, a charge that he pled guilty to. 
The investigation into him revealed that he had been illegally obtaining prescription painkillers and had been abusing the drugs for a number of years, even during trials. He received a two-year suspended sentence for this. Further investigation revealed that he had been buying drugs during breaks in trials, so like when they'd stopped for a short recess. And this resulted in an investigation into whether or not he'd actually been sober and competent during the trials in which he had resided over in the last two years. Unfortunately, the trials that related to the murders of Shannon and Chris came within this time frame. And because of that, Judge Blackwood ordered the new trials as he said there had been, quote, structural errors in the trials. The state, of course, did try to stop this, but their appeal to prevent the real trials was blocked in January 2012. This next bit is a bit of a legal whirlwind, so hold on to your hats. But Judge Blackwood ordered new trials for the suspects. These trials were to be held at the end of that year, 2012. Then, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned Judge Blackwood's decision for the new trials for LaMarcus Davidson, Latalvis Cobbins, and George Thomas because they said the former judge's actions outside the courtroom had not impacted those trials. They did say that Vanessa Coleman could get a retrial, however, because her trial had been the last one, and by that point, Judge Baumgartner had reportedly been visibly disorientated, and his speech had been very slow and incoherent, and apparently he'd also repeatedly confused the defendants' names. The district attorney even asked Judge Blackwood to recuse himself from the trials uh, because they said that Judge Blackwood's failure to follow the Supreme Court guidance indicated that his court had lost all semblance and fairness and impartiality. But Judge Blackwood ignored the district attorney's words and once again ordered a new trial for LaMarcus Davidson, Latalvis Cobbins and George Thomas. He even told the court that he would not quit and that he, quote, intended to be the captain of this ship and to run this ship. Why, though? At what cost? I mean... Really, it's not like these trials are particularly on the fence. There's a wealth of evidence linking these people, suggesting they're guilty. I'm just really struggling to understand why this man is on such a mission to Mm -hmm. rerun all of these trials at huge expense, emotionally, to the victims' families, but also uh, even just a monetary expense. Mm -hmm. Well, so basically this argy-bargy of the courts trying to get involved and then Blackwood saying like, no, he was running this ship. This went back and forth quite a lot. And Gary Christian, who was Shannon's dad, he even said, this judge is on a mission. I don't know if it's a book or a movie or what exactly he's up to. But then he was basically like, but he needs to step down. He said, like, it's clear that he just wants fame. And this isn't about a a book or a movie or fame. This is about my daughter. And that's something Judge Blackwood should be thinking about. And to him, it was clear that he wasn't. And I think actually, to be honest, that sounds, you know, quite like I understand where he's coming from. That doesn't sound, you know, completely far-fetched that that is probably what Judge Blackwood wanted because there's no other reason for being absolutely so adamant that these people deserved retrials. No, absolutely. I think, as they say, I I mean, of course, you need to be coherent and literate as a judge presiding over trials. But actually, this case is quite clear cut in my mind. Yeah, well, I completely agree. So eventually, by the end of 2012, Judge Kurtz replaced Blackwood and was set to oversee the retrials of Davidson, Cobbins and Thomas. Judge Blackwood was actually still allowed to reside over uh, Vanessa Coleman's case as there had been no contention as to whether she should have received a retrial. In Vanessa Coleman's retrial, she was once again found guilty for the crimes committed against Shannon Christian, but once again found not guilty for the crimes committed against Christopher Newsom. Whereas in her first trial, she had received a 53-year sentence. This time, she only received a 35-year sentence. In May 2013, George Thomas was once again found guilty on the charges he was facing for the crimes against Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom, and he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences plus an additional 25 years, so he will never be released from prison. 
three and a half years after George Thomas's retrial, Lamarcus Davidson's retrial took place. So this is now December 2016. Thankfully for the families, his previous death sentence was upheld. For whatever reason, Latalvis Cobbins' retrial never took place. So if you can remember way back, I mentioned the fifth suspect, Eric Boyd, um, and his was the first trial and it was only in federal court and he'd been charged in relation to helping Lamarcus Davidson for hide from the police. His verdict had always upset the Christian Newsom families, as I kind of alluded to earlier, um, because they were certain that Eric Boyd had actually been involved in the crimes that related to their children. As mentioned, when I spoke about Latalvis Cobbins um, and his speech on the stand, he implicated Eric Boyd quite heavily within his testimony. Um, you know, he said things like, Boyd comes in behind him holding the guy. I noticed the guy had a bandana around his eyes and his hands tied behind his back. Eric Boyd, he left the house and when he came back, he didn't have the guy with him. So I didn't know where the guy was. I don't know what happened to him. Uh Obviously, this is an inference once again, but I think we can all imagine that the guy that Latalvis Cobbins was speaking about, um, the guy that Eric Boyd was in control of, was Christopher Newsom. Um, and so that phrase where he said he left the house and when he came back, he didn't have the guy with him, it sounded a lot like to the court that Boyd had taken Christopher Newsom down to the railway track and he had been uh, complicit in his murder. Obviously, this was huge because he'd faced no charges in relation to the murders of Chris or Shannon. So, in April 2018, he was indicted on a first-degree murder charge and an especially aggravated robbery, kidnapping and rape charge in relation to the murders of Chris and Shannon. At Eric Boyd's trial, one of the other convicted murderers, George Thomas, actually took the stand and testified against Eric. The jury found Eric Boyd guilty on all charges and he was sentenced to life in prison. After 11 years, the trials were all over and all of the heinous perpetrators were behind bars, Hugh Newsom, Chris's father, said, I think I can go to the grave now satisfied I fought a good fight. Gary Christian, Shannon's father, said, We'll never get justice, but this gets us closer. Obviously, my heart goes out to both the Christian and Newsom families. I read somewhere that Hugh and Mary Newsom, so that's Chris's parents, they'd promised Chris at his funeral that they would be in court any time one of the suspects was having a hearing. And they did. They went to every single hearing that involved any of the five defendants. And because of all the retrials and the other hearings that surrounded the retrials, this actually meant they ended up in court over 300 times over the years. That is not only emotionally exhausting, but it must be physically draining too, because, you know, court is not a nice or pleasant place to be at the best of times, but especially not when you're there to hear about all the awful things that happened to your son. And then to have to hear those things, not only five different times for five different suspects, but to have to hear it all over again at the retrials, it really is just unimaginable. I completely agree. I think this is a family that got caught up in the politics of the judicial system. And I just mm -hmm. think it's really sad here because it's an incredibly harrowing experience to go through once. And effectively, this poor family had to go through it twice for the end result to be almost exactly the same. Yeah. And you just do have to wonder if there wasn't a more sensitive way to have handled that that whole mm -hmm. thing. And actually, I don't know, is there enough things in courts, uh, you know, in the law to protect the families of the victims? And actually, yes, you need procedure in place and you need to have things like retrials of stuff. Of course, sometimes they do hold their value and there are, will be things that judges do that actually really do want retrials, but I don't think that was the case here. And mm -hmm. yeah, I just, my heart really, really goes out to, to the families in this one. Yeah, I echo all of that. Well, actually, because of this, some laws changed, which I'll just quickly briefly mention in a minute. But yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I don't 
think that there is really enough in in most judicial systems actually i don't think there's enough um things in place to protect the families of victims in these horrible violent crimes i absolutely agree with that so yeah like um like you said Sal, everyone kind of ended up with the same sentences so all three of the men received life sentences and lamarcus davidson received the death penalty Vanessa Coleman was ultimately sentenced to 35 years in prison, um, but in 2014, she applied for parole. This was really only about two years after her second trial, but I think because they probably used, obviously, the previous time that she spent in prison as part of her new shorter sentence, it meant that she was eligible for parole very shortly after that trial. Her parole was thankfully denied, but horrifyingly, she is able to reapply for parole December of this year, 2020. I would like to end this episode on a hopefully slightly lighter note. In 2008, the house on Chipman Street where these gruesome crimes took place was demolished and a memorial for Shannon and Chris was erected in its place. Each year, a $2,000 scholarship is awarded to at least one female student at the University of Tennessee in Shannon Christian's name and honour. This scholarship is funded through a private golf tournament that is also held each year in Shannon's honour. The Halls Community Park Board also pledged a $1,000 scholarship each year to a senior graduating from Halls High School in the name of Christopher Newsom. And each year, the Chris Newsom Baseball Tournament is also held in his honour. This is especially important to Mary and Hugh Newsom, as their son had loved baseball so much. As I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, in 2014, two new laws were introduced in the names of Shannon and Chris. The Shannon Christian Act enforces restrictions on defendants and their lawyers with regards to what they can do and say when trying to portray victims in a negative light in front of the jury. Good. Yeah, exactly. I think this is in reference to the fact that the defence were trying to paint Shannon as a delinquent. Um, you know, when we couldn't, obviously we went into a lot of detail about that earlier, but that new act in Shannon's name kind of puts restrictions on that. And the Chris Newsom Act revised the rules for a judge to act as a, quote, 13th juror at the end of criminal trials. And this, I imagine, was in retaliation to the whole scandal with Judge Baumgartner and the legal issues that followed that. Oh, I'm really pleased that this is another case that actually has brought about some positive change to hopefully benefit mm -hmm. future families. I think it's probably really surprised me doing this, how many cases actually do bring about change in laws. And I think, well, I know that our legal system is based on precedence, but it's just... It's good to hear positive precedents being set, isn't it, for Absolutely. the future. And when you hear wrongdoings and misjustices in these cases, uh, yeah, it's some some solace to know that hopefully there'll be one less family yeah. who might have to go through what the families that we hear about have. Mm -hmm. I, I echo all of that. I definitely agree with that. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. I think realistically, we're going to have to say that we'll see you next Wednesday. I think, you know, for Sal and I, the last three months have been an absolute whirlwind. Um, and researching, recording, editing and putting out two episodes a week for the last month has been amazing. But I think, to be honest, now I really just need to come up for air a little bit and um, just get my life slightly more back to normal before I start work in a few weeks and try and sleep without the nightmare. So I hope that's OK and nobody will be crossing me for that. But, you know, we'll still, of course, bring you a new episode every Wednesday. And we genuinely thank you from the bottom of our hearts for giving us enough listeners and support to bring about the opportunity to have been able to bring you two episodes a week. It's been amazing and we love you all a lot and we are really, really grateful. Yeah, a huge thank you to everyone. Um, and obviously we'll still be welcome to listener requests and lots of debate over on Instagram and Facebook. Mm -hmm. We really do like hearing all your comments. And who knows, maybe now it'll be furloughed again and we can go back to two episodes a week. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, also remember that now is your last chance to enter our giveaway. So head over to Facebook and make sure that you enter. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this case, and we will see you next Wednesday. Bye. Bye.